MP3902. This is the We Are U of T podcast. My name is Nathaniel Heisler and my interviewing partner is Hollis Moore. We are QP3902 members and we are putting together this podcast to facilitate dialogue and the spread of information across our numbers. For every episode, we will do several interviews with people able to speak to various issues about the strike. Hopefully it can be informative for our members and a bit entertaining to listen to while commuting to and from picket lines. The podcast will air as long as the strike continues, and we will try to put together one episode or more depending on demand every week. This is our first episode, so please forgive the rough edges of our work. Also, we plan on adding a section where we can engage with listeners, so if you have any questions you want answered, or ideas for interviews, we would love to hear them. And you can contact us at qppodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, qppodcast at gmail.com. We will be at the upcoming membership meeting on Friday, March 20th. We'll be sticking around after the meeting to conduct exit interviews, so if you see us and are interested, please introduce yourself. We would really love to hear from members. This week, we have two interviews. Our first interview is with Humberto da Silva, a national representative for CUPE, who did strike training for Local 3902 and 3903. He is also in charge of the mobilization of QP Local 416, the Toronto City Workers, in 2011. He also happens to be the father of a student at the University of Toronto. He discusses various questions regarding media attention, information campaigns, and public opinion. But he also provides a comprehensive discussion of picketing and picketers' rights, which starts at around the 18-minute mark. Our second interview is with Abdullah Shihipar, who is a fourth-year student at the University of Toronto and president of the Arts and Science Student Union, which is an academic student union with over 23,000 full-time undergraduate students at the University of Toronto. He speaks to questions of students' rights, especially vis-a-vis syllabi changes and the ways in which the strike is affecting classes. We'll open up this inaugural podcast with Humberto da Silva of QP National and his general thoughts on the strike, as we found them to be uplifting in these difficult times. The right wing and the great corporate capital interests have their thousands of think tanks. Um, These people that are on the line right now are the thinkers of the labor movement in the future. There are trials right now on the picket line and in dealing with the media and dealing with the police and understanding what this struggle is like and the fact that they are academics, they're the writers, they're the thinkers, um, will be the seed for the revival of the labor movement in the future because these are our think tanks. These are our uh, academics. And I, I can probably imagine that right now on that line is the next Noam Chomsky or Chris Hedges or or Walter Ruther or any of the great uh, leaders and thinkers of our time. These struggles are, are putting them into the line of fire so that the real world issues that working people face can now be contemplated upon by the people with the, the best uh, capabilities of doing it. The university has been spreading a business-as-usual message. What we are all interested in is what the union and the picketers ought to be doing to counter this message. What are the best tactics for letting 
not only people on campus know, but the general public know that something is going on here, that there is a disruption. And so I know you mentioned that picketing should target, should inconvenience the employer versus the general public. But what about a situation where the general public becomes part of the leverage that brings the employer back to the table? 100% of the general public should be part of the discussion. The students of U of T should be part of the discussion, and they should be brought into it, but not by inconveniencing them unless, you know, they are obviously trying to use a part of the service which is being done with strike breakers or that's being done with, with scabs, at which point, you know, they shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be business as usual. Of course, the U of T is going to promote, oh, it's business as usual, everybody come to class, everything's fine. But the reality is, um, and my son goes to U of T, so I know what the reality is, that all they're doing is delaying assignments being turned in because they know that they really can't deal with them. There, there are no seminars. I mean, most students don't really talk to their professors. They talk to their TA. They don't get any real direction from the professors. They get it from, from their TA. So it's not business as usual, and the students know it. And the students should be engaged. The general public should be engaged, e.g. myself. If I'm paying a tuition on behalf of my son, I'd like to see him get a full education. Uh, to get all the services of, of the university, and to have the people that are delivering those services uh, be justly compensated for the work they do. I don't want my tuition dollar to be going to a sweatshop, uh, an academic sweatshop. I want it to be going to people that, that are duly compensated for what they're doing in providing education to my son. So I definitely should be part of that conversation. But um, that conversation happens not just on the picket line, but there should be picket lines on every forum, every Internet site where students go. And that is part of picketing duty as well. I mean, picket, picketing with the sign is, is something that's still important. It's very important. But there's other places that picket duty takes place now. And holding a sign up used to be the only way to communicate a message for workers that didn't necessarily own a newspaper. But nowadays, there are other ways of getting the message out. And I think that the, the academic staff of U of T um, are probably going to teach the labor movement eventually about what these tactics are. Um, I mean, I'm probably speaking to laws and tactics that were effective 100 years ago, but with a changing nature, these laws are still on the books and these tactics are still used. But the new tactics, uh, that book is still to be written, and some of it is being written here. We may not really know until we, we look back on this what was effective and what wasn't. Without the benefit of hindsight at this point, have you noticed any promising tactics, some of these new tactics that you speak of? I'm heartened by the fact that they um, have done some coordination uh, between York and U of P, the fact that they're both out at the same time. I mean, the most effective strike of all is a general strike. Let's face it, when everything is shut down, until the issues are resolved. That's 
utopian view that, that we would ever have a society where we would all drop our tools until this injustice is addressed. But the fact that there is some coordination, that, that, that York is coming down to support U of T, that U of T is going up to York, that, that we don't have this as an isolated situation. But just from speaking to people in general, there's a lot more support for this strike than there has been for many in the last decade or so. So the times are a change in somewhat in that it's very hard to point at these union workers and say, oh, look at these privileged people protecting their gold-plated benefits. The narrative is, is starting is starting to come around. People understand the value of a union. Students understand the value of job security. And I think that this particular dispute is, is uh, helping to gel those feelings in the general public, in the student body. And I think it's a lot to do with, with good messaging. In order to strike, you do have to have clear and cogent messaging. So don't just, you know, write up any picket signs. I mean, I was down at one of the rallies and was very pleased to see that they, uh, they had very good picket signs, the ones I saw anyways. And I was actually really impressed to have seen that on a couple of the picket signs, they'd actually rewritten lyrics specific to their situation for Solidarity Forever. And it was probably the best version of Solidarity Forever I've heard uh, in at least a decade. I think it's a lot to do with good messaging. And then I think it's partially also to do with the fact that 30 years of you know neoliberal economics hasn't done anything for anybody except the 1%, and people get that. Have you noticed any patterns in the way major media outlets are covering these labor actions at both York and U of T? Are you satisfied with the coverage that these strikes have been receiving? If not, what is lacking and what ought to be brought to the public's attention? The coverage that the 3902 and 3903 strikes have been receiving is less hostile than normal. And that's probably because they are a group that is legitimately exploited. No, I'm not legitimately exploited. <laughs> exploitation is never. But the, the exploitation is so obvious that, that it's, their, their dispute is legitimate in the public eye. Again, you know, everybody understands that tuition has been increasing, and, and a lot of people that have been assisting their kids with their tuition uh, know that the cost of the education is going up, and it just seems strange to them, or it's a huge disconnect to see how little people that are actually on the front lines delivering the bulk of the education are actually getting in recompense. I mean, the the old idea of the tenured professor is, is so archaic now that people are starting to recognize it as the academic sweatshop it's become. So the coverage is not satisfying, but at least it hasn't been outright hostile in the way that we see with many disputes. So again, we can't rely on the mainstream corporate media to do anything. If their coverage is neutral, that's as good as it gets. As a parent yourself, what would you hope that students as well as their parents 
and I, I primarily mean undergraduate students here, as well as parents of undergraduate students, what actions could these groups be taking to put pressure on the employer to come back to the table? Students should be outraged. They should join their uh, TA sessionals on the lines and march with them. They should contact their MPP and their MP and essentially ask for, you know, some kind of a tuition rebate, which they could apply then to other types of remedial uh, care that they may need because they're not getting the benefit of their tuition. The people that actually provide the benefit at, at their educational institution are not there. I mean, you can, you can watch, uh, you know, uh, a professor in Convocation Hall with a, th a thousand other students, but the real benefit is when you actually get a chance in, in a lab or in a uh, session with, with your uh, TA that you're actually going to figure out what it is that you've taken in and, and where the gaps in your knowledge still are. They're the ones that are going to mark and grade your paper. So all of the benefit in education, really, or the vast majority of it, is coming from those people that are marching outside. So to pretend that it's business as usual and to just, you know, uh, look at it as, well, guess what, I get a two-week extension on my paper or a three-week extension on my paper, it's not good enough. They have to engage because today it's those, those TAs, those special instructors, but tomorrow it'll be you when you graduate from school into a, an unpaid internship that leads nowhere into a minimum wage job not related in any way to your education into a private sector job because the public sector has been decimated so there's nowhere for somebody that wants to be a public servant to go. So, you know, fight now or, or fight now in somebody else's struggle or, you know, fight later uh, in your own individual struggle. Um, I'd rather join somebody else. So students and parents, myself, because, I mean, I do this work uh, with a passion because I believe in it and uh, I'm seeing it. It's been brought into my own home now that uh, people that I've worked with are, are out struggling to make things better. But if they make things better for themselves, they're making opportunities for the students they're teaching and for generations to come. Now, in terms of this idea of a tuition rebate, a partial tuition rebate. Is there precedent for this? My understanding is that following the York labor disruption a few years back, that students actually managed to be successful with a protracted lawsuit against the university for a partial tuition rebate. Can you speak to this? Do you have any knowledge of this rebate situation? Again, I'm, I, I mentioned that as just one potential you know, ask. Um, sometimes, you know, that can be a reactionary thing, you know, in terms of asking for a rebate or on something that really the service should have been provided. But the fact is that you pay tuition um, or somebody paid tuition for an education and the university, by allowing this dispute to get to this point, has now deprived people of the education, and the university is saving money. I mean, let's not forget that every day that, that, um, that this strike goes on, 
they are not paying people, and that money is budgeted, and at the end, that money is going to be in the budget. I mean, I've seen employers pay for a wage increase by making a strike last three weeks and then taking that 4% and saying, okay, here's your wage increase. Students have to figure out where their interests are, so the student union should get together and figure out where their interests are. Parents should get together and establish where their interests are, but nobody should allow the university to turn this into any kind of a windfall. There are lots of reports being gathered that professors are conducting legal votes to change their syllabi, to change the assessment methods that will be used in particular courses. So this has the effect of eliminating duties that otherwise would have been performed by QP3902 members. In terms of legal rights, what can QP members look forward to when they come back to work? Will they simply have less duties than they had previously and thus less income? Well, any professor that's doing that, in my opinion, is essentially working against the strike. If they are essentially changing their uh, methods, you know, they're likely watering down what, you know, contact the student has with the university and what kind of feedback the student is going to get on their progress in their academic studies. So any professor that's doing that and changing the syllabus and, 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 and all of that, they're essentially playing into the university's role, which is to essentially try and further marginalize the teaching, uh, the, the TAs. So I, I, I'm sorry to say that, it, well, I'm not sorry to say anybody who is doing that is, is verging very close to, to trying to scab out the work of the TAs. So I'm, I'm sorry to hear that academics are doing that. And if they're trying to further, you know, reduce the amount of contact that a student has with the teaching staff, then what they're really doing is just destroying education. Because if you don't get access to your professor, you know, you might get to talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, maybe once if you're really lucky. And now you're going to change the syllabus so that it's not delivered by TAs. Maybe you're going to have uh, multiple choice tests, which can be marked by machine instead of essays. Really, you're just turning education into something you could do online. Right now, QP3902 members are carrying picket signs stating that we are on legal strike. What kinds of rights do striking workers have with regard to picketing in particular? Well, picketing is really the exercise of the constitutional right of uh, free assembly and free expression under the Charter, uh, combined with the right to strike, which is part of the constitutional right of free assembly. Um, to be on a legal strike means that the um, provisions of the Ontario Labor Relations Act pertaining to going on strike have all been met. The parties have met in conciliation. The conciliation officer did not recommend a board of mediation. The 17-day time period, the cooling-off period, has expired, and they're legally uh, in a, a 
position to strike. Um, picketing is the expression of the strike, is where uh, people can assemble uh, on public property, holding signs expressing the reasons for which they are withdrawing their labor, or, or in the case of a lockout, uh, you know why they believe they were locked out, and to communicate with people coming to and from the workplace uh, about why they should uh, not use specific services uh, offered by the employer um, to explain the side of the uh, union in this dispute and to reason with any person who is crossing the picket line to break the strike, conventionally known as uh, people who are scabs. So, I mean, what you have the right to do is essentially to, to march uh, in a public place to display signs and to communicate with people coming and going um, from that place in order to um, provide your rationale or reasons for being on strike. When you did deliver strike or picket training in advance of this strike action, what could you share with us some of the main takeaway points from that training? Um, you know, that that uh, picketing is an exercise of your right of uh, free assembly and free expression, that you should picket in a public place, uh, e.g. the sidewalk, um, that you should stay within the protocols that have been agreed with the employer, if any such protocols have been agreed. Often they are not agreed. Um, not to back up uh, traffic onto a public highway because otherwise um, the police could become involved under the Highway Traffic Act. Uh, not to make it an issue with the general public. Your issue is with your employer. The general public should not be in any way um, inconvenienced in their regular travel. E.g., we're, we're picketing on a sidewalk, so you know, make way for people that just want to walk down the sidewalk and are not going to interfere with your lines. You should reason with anybody who is entering the workplace to scab your work, um, but not to interfere physically with them. Um, and that uh, the media and the police should be dealt with uh, promptly by the uh, picket captains. I want to dig deeper on a couple of these points. In terms of not backing up traffic onto a highway, is there a technical category highway or would Bloor Street be considered a highway for the purposes of this? I think for the purposes of the Highway Traffic Act, any public road is considered a highway. Um, Essentially, if you back up a lot of traffic, the police can become involved in your in your picket line protocol because one of the ways of conducting a picket line is to essentially march on the sidewalk and that delays uh, vehicles because pedestrians have a right of way. But if your picket line is such that you just stand still in front of vehicles or you back up so many vehicles that on a single lane road, um, you know, uh, that vehicles can't get by, or on a double lane road, it, it takes so long to get around the backed up vehicles that it creates a traffic backlog into an intersection. That could be considered reason enough for the police to interfere in your picket line. At least it's been my experience. The picket captain has to be the person that steps in and says, okay, you know what? 
reasonable request. We are backing up traffic onto the road. Let you know five cars or ten cars through, and then commence your ticket protocol immediately again. And and that should satisfy the issue of uh, blocking uh, traffic. This past week at a QP three nine zero two meeting of members, there was a mention of transitioning from pickets to hard pickets. Could you tell us a bit about the differences between these two types of pickets? I mean, a picket line can be anything from purely an information picket where you um, give people who are passing through your lines information to the point where you block, for instance, vehicles coming through for one minute or five minutes or, or however long your protocol allows. Uh, perhaps it's the transitioning from an information picket to uh, a strike protocol picket where, you know, you are holding vehicles up for a specific period of time. Can you uh, just explain what you mean then by a strike protocol picket? Well, um, quite often, one of the last things negotiated between the employer and the union prior to the strike commencing is a protocol. Mm -hmm saying that, for instance, the employer might be willing to do something such as maintaining uh, employee benefits during the strike so as not to create a, you know, a hardship based on somebody's requirements for a specific pharmaceutical that they wouldn't be able to afford if they're on strike. And in exchange, the union might agree to holding up vehicles only for one minute uh, prior to letting them through the picket lines that would be a protocol, a negotiated protocol. An injunction is when, you know, the picket line might be doing something that the employer states is, is in violation of some statute or law and goes to a court in order to get an injunction against that specific kind of action. And that would be, I guess, another type of protocol, although it's a legal injunction, essentially saying that if you continue to do something which the employer has an injunction against you doing, you would technically be in contempt of court and then potentially subject to whatever uh, sanctions a, a judge would impose upon you. If we assume that the intention is perhaps to move from a more informational picket to a kind of picket that involves blocking of vehicular traffic, what are some of the risks associated with this escalated form of picketing? I don't know if that's necessarily an ex escalation mm -hmm. because quite often that's where that's where things start. I mean, a picket line is a picket line. It's it's something you know to dissuade people from crossing or to discourage business as usual while the employer um, and the workers are in a dispute. So the the issues can be the safety of the picketers. But for instance, uh, at the Toronto Dominion Centre, when the cleaning staff was off work due to a strike, a lot of people in very expensive cars would try to run down the picketers at the picket line. So you had the very real situation of you know people in half a million dollar cars trying to run down immigrant cleaning women who were trying to get uh, $11 an hour at the time. Building on that point, how should picketers react and how proactively can the line mitigate this risk? 
you should get out your cell phone cam, make sure you get a good picture of the license plate, the vehicle, and the driver in order to provide evidence to the police of what took place here, but not to uh, put your body in front of a car because everywhere that has occurred, it's, it's resulted in injuries. In fact, most of the violence that has occurred on picket line in the last decade or so has been violence against picketers by people in vehicles. And the fact is that this strike may be over in, you know, a couple of weeks or a month, but your knee that is busted, you'll have to live with for the rest of your life and not to uh, heroically try to stop vehicles driven by assholes. Without trying to heroically stop these vehicles, what can the line do as a collective to mitigate the risk of charging vehicles? Again, have a clear-cut protocol, even if it's purely at the picket line level. It may not be a protocol as usually is defined with the employer, but to have a protocol of what you're going to do um, at your picket line. So first of all, you should decide this is how long we are going to hold vehicles and then let them through individually after that period of time. Um, I normally recommend a minute um, expires. Uh, if somebody comes to your picket line, they open their window, they accept uh, your literature, and from day to day, some people keep your literature and display it on their dashboard, um, let them through because people do have to cross picket lines. A lot of people don't do it by choice. They do it because if they don't, there's nothing that protects them from the sanction of their employers. Uh, picketers should be aware of the fact that when somebody won't roll down their window and they won't talk to you, they're probably not going to respect your line. Um, So be aware of those people in those vehicles. There seems to be, and this is purely from my anecdotal experience, some kind of correlation between the cost of the vehicle and their tolerance for a picket line. Again, this is coming from the Toronto Dominion Centre where it seemed that people in really expensive cars would be willing to run down picketers. Um, and to uh, immediately, if you do have that kind of incident, everybody gets their phones out, gets a clear picture of the car, the incident, the driver, the license plate number, and the police should be called. But no heroics of that nature on the picket line because nobody wins a fight with a three-ton vehicle. This is perhaps a naive question. Much of the traffic around the University of Toronto campus is pedestrian traffic. Is there a type of picket that actually involves holding up pedestrians, for example, a minute, and then letting them through? Or is this tactic typically applied more to vehicular traffic? I would be very careful about having a line where you interfere with the free passage of another individual to scab your work, but you should not physically obstruct them. Um, I would have an issue if somebody attempted to physically restrain or obstruct me when I go upon my way uh, down the sidewalk or entering a building if somebody wished to speak to me or give me literature or engage me. I believe that's fully within their rights, but it's also generally within the rights of another individual to decline to engage, to decline to accept literature, etc. And if you do attempt to 
obstruct or restrain somebody, you're kind of playing into the uh, game of provocateurs, provincially, where somebody could come to your line and then say that you assaulted or restrained them in some way and use that as a way to get an injunction on behalf of the employer. So I'd, I'd be careful about that tactic. Generally, the tactic is not to keep them from going in or out of the building, but providing a visible display and to some degree a distraction from what's going on in the building. And that's where creative actions, you know, noisemakers, singing, and that kind of thing, so that people are always keenly aware, even if they're in the building, that, they, uh, that something's going on, that something's happening here and to potentially give people a reason to come outside when they have an opportunity to join you. In terms of the kinds of pickets that are going to hold up cars for, for example, one minute, where can those occur? So where exactly are the strategic points that vehicles can be legitimately stopped? Again, where there's a public sidewalk in front of an entry point into the employer's property is generally where that that intersection is generally where that tactic would be applied, and then it becomes uh, the intersection between your rights as a pedestrian and you know the rights of the vehicle, which is to give you the right of way until such time as they can enter the employer's premises. Are there cases of actions on picket lines that skirt the line between legal and illegal? There, the, all actions on a picket line are on the edge between legal and illegal. You know, if you go back 100 years, the employer used to hire strike breakers to come and break up a picket line with baseball bats and fence stakes. That was entirely illegal, but completely accepted. Uh, you know, the police would stand by and watch as this happened. Walking up and down on the sidewalk, you are exercising your right to walk up and down on the sidewalk. But by holding up a vehicle, you know, that then becomes a test between the rights of the vehicle operator and your rights as a pedestrian. So there's always a very fine line between what's legal and what's illegal. When it's illegal, it's we don't consider it, or I don't consider it as an activist, to be a crime. It's, it's civil disobedience, and civil disobedience has been the method by which we've obtained most of our substantive rights. Um, if it weren't for civil disobedience, although you know black people had the right to vote in Mississippi, um, they would have been prevented from voting by all of the different uh, Jim Crow laws that had been put in place, which prevented people from exercising their legal rights. So sometimes uh, civil disobedience is required. Now, if anybody's going to indulge in civil disobedience, they should realize that the law may come down on them as individuals. It may not be something that the union will be fined for, but which the individual may have to accept uh, the responsibility for their actions. The union may be able to, in some cases, provide legal representation, but if you are part of a, an action which veers into civil disobedience, you may be charged with something. 
and that does happen on picket lines. There's no doubt about it, and it happened on many picket lines, and, and a lot of the civil disobedience has been perfectly justified because the law is generally not on our side. Um, and historically, in labor struggles, the law has always been on the side of the employer right up to the point of using extreme violence against um, anybody who's on strike. I know that uh, a few years ago, the long York strike ended with back-to-work legislation. What are the pros and cons for union members of being legislated back to work? I don't think there's any pro to back to work legislation and it's an inter it's an interference with free collective bargaining. And employers have essentially come to rely on the government to bail them out of their their right to bargain collectively. Uh, Air Canada essentially banked on the fact that, that the government would prevent uh, Air Canada employees from striking. Canada Post locked out its employees, you know, essentially relying on the fact that the government would put them back to work. They, they legislated uh, York University employees back to work. All it is is it, it now gives the employers another out. They really don't have to bargain because if they just let it go long enough, the government will come in and legislate a solution. Now, the legislated solution are no, is generally no longer binding arbitration, where an arbitrator can pick and choose from both positions and put together a settlement. Now it tends to go to final offer arbitration, where an arbitrator just says either the union gets what its final offer is or the employer gets what its final offer is, which again ties the hands of the arbitrator. So back-to-work legislation is not a benefit for union members. It essentially provides the employer with a reason not to negotiate, to just stall, and then hopefully uh, the government will step in, legislate everybody everybody back to work, give an arbitrator the power to do final offer arbitration, and then everybody has to hammer down their demands in order to to try and, and get uh, the, the last offer that the arbitrator is allowed to select. And then an arbitrator is really reduced to a coin tosser. They get to flip a coin heads or tails, so you get the employer's final offer or the union's final offer, and then they just have to write a rationale for it at the end. It's not a benefit. Um, if we had anti-scab legislation like in Quebec and like we briefly had, if the government wasn't waiting in the wings to legislate something, guess what? Employers would have to go to the table and hammer out a reasonable deal with their employees, and these things wouldn't last as long. Nobody's you know, school year would be at risk and uh, we wouldn't have such an unequal society. That was Humberto da Silva of QP National. We thank him for his thoughts and contributions to this podcast. Next up, we have Abdullah Shihipar, president of the Arts and Science Student Union, and his discussion of how the strike is affecting undergraduate students. Continued disruption on the undergraduate life of students at the University of Toronto. And basically, how the university has chosen to compensate for it is it's chosen to compensate, compensate for it by, you know, changing the syllabus. And in some cases, instructors have chosen to change the syllabus improperly. 
So basically, there are a whole host of issues where students' rights are being violated or students, students are being taken advantage of. So the strike has been quite busy in the sense of trying to like document those and like report the cases where civil lives are being changed improperly and also educate students about their rights, making sure that their rights are upheld. We hear, again, consistently in, in our office of, you know, syllabus, uh, of the syllabus being changed. And oftentimes the syllabus being changed with the vote because a vote is required. But the option to keep the original syllabus isn't included because they say, oh, it's not, it's not possible. But, like, that's actually a student's right to keep the original syllabus. So oftentimes we'll see... A, them take out like 30% a 30% paper or like a 30% midterm that wasn't multiple choice and you end up with a course having two evaluations for example a 40% midterm that you already wrote and then a 60% final which you know that's not actually like getting too heavily weighted evaluations like that isn't that isn't a good quality education and it, it may have bad outcomes for the students marks. Can you just remind us of the proper protocol for changing course requirements? Right. So essentially, in order to uh, at the beginning of the of the course, when a student signs up for a course, um, the the syllabus is a contract between the student and the instructor, whoever the instructor is, whether it's a professional, whether it's a TA, whether it's a faculty. That 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 rule does not change. So essentially, the syllabus is a contract. Because, and it makes sense because, you know, students, want, they get the syllabus at the beginning of the year and they want to plan out their assignments, they want to plan out their readings. Um, so that's why it's taken quite seriously. Now, if you want to change the syllabus, and we're talking about, like, part-changing, you know, assignments, the grading of assignments, or changing the late policy, or changing the waiting, the, the, when things are due. If we're changing those aspects of the syllabus, the syllabus in general, then you have to take a vote in class, and that vote has to be announced one one class before the, the vote is scheduled to take place. So let's say I have a class Tuesday and I don't know, Thursday, um, the same class. If I'm going to vote on Thursday, I have to be informed of the vote on Tuesday. Um, and, you know, of course, using all mechanisms like Blackboard and all that stuff um, is helpful, but it has to all, the first word has to come from the class. Um, and then technically, the vote has to be held in class, although, um, you know, I don't think anyone is going to complain if it's, um, like, you know, online for all access for students, but technically it has to be held in class. And you also have the right to request a secret, a secret ballot if you don't want to. Um, you know, obviously voting by show of hands can be intimidating for some students, and we have gotten reports of, you know, intimidation. And the final thing is, we're voting on changing the syllabus. So basically, a vote where you have two alternative syllabi is, by definition, forcing you to adopt a change. There needs to be an, an option to keep the original syllabus or an option to reject the alternative. So you have that right to keep the original syllabus. In terms of what we've been hearing from students um, in terms of violations, some, sometimes professors... Uh, unfortunately, and departments, unfortunately, will basically say, "Oh, well, these are the two options. You have to, you have to go with one of them." Or like, you don't have. Uh, I checked it with the chair, and department chair. It's okay. Um, we're we're going to vote on some other aspect. So, uh, the, and some students, and also students feel. Um, since us, we had one student report that they were that the class was threatened. with like, "Oh, if you don't make the if you don't make this change, the class is canceled," and blah blah blah. Which is, of course, not true. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a lot of dynamics, and it's important that students know that they, these are their rights and they, that they should be able 
that these are, these are the rights that they have. Um, no one can take that away from them. And if they feel uncomfortable, then they should come to the students' union and talk about it. How have these votes went down? Has there tended to be consensus or has it been really polarizing? Do you have any uh, direct or indirect accounts of how these votes have played out? I think I, I think more or less students, um, unfortunately, students feel, you know, that they have no other choice and they have to adopt the change. Because the change is being proposed by the professors, that they feel like they have to adopt the change. The students who have dissented do not feel comfortable, or if they do dissent, um, you know, put themselves out there and they feel extremely uncomfortable dissenting in front of a, an authority figure like a professor, even though it is their fundamental right to do so. Um, so, I mean, we've had cases where, like, you know, it's not a big deal in class, but then students will come back and say, like, look, my class, um, you know, they they changed the syllabus by taking a vote, but they didn't include an option to, like, keep the original syllabus. And then there was a paper that we were supposed to write, and I really wanted to write that paper. Now we have, like, six to the final. That's, that's not that ideal for me. So it, it is it is a problematic issue in the sense that I think within the class there is the group dynamic of people you know the professor or whoever is proposing the change as an authority figure they may have you know the quote unquote word of the department behind them um, and then they feel you know although intimidated to even if they they disagree with it they they might feel intimidated to go with the change and just feel like they have contracts, which is unfortunate. The syllabus is a contract, so it is a serious matter, which is why we've been trying hard to educate students. That said, there have been some brave students who have been standing up, but it's it's convincing your class that is that's a bit of an issue because no one really wants to you know, we're talking about your grades. No one really wants to like, you know, take that risk. The ASU has requested that students email the union with reports of rule violations, etc., that might be occurring in classes. Do you have a sense of, A, how many of these reports you have received, and B, what percentage of courses this might be occurring in? So in terms of the improperly changing syllabus, in terms of not taking a vote, initially we had a very, maybe three or four reports of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we have also a few more reports on, you know, the class providing two options, but mm-hmm. not actually keeping the original option. And if we have a few reports of that, so we had like, I think, two or three reports of that. Mm-hmm. The thing is, reports are always indicative of something and are always less than the actual amount that's mm-hmm. occurring. Because students, again, like some students feel uncomfortable even anonymously reporting something because they feel somehow that they'll be tracked or like it won't be, you know, anonymous. So the way I look at it is, yeah, we have those reports, but it's it's indicative of something much larger. Certainly from the the reports that I've been seeing, syllabi changes are being pushed quite, quite rapidly in most courses that are affected. And for the most part, the rules are being followed, but like because of the sheer amount of questions that we're still that changes are being pushed, it also leads me to believe that you know the rules aren't being followed more likely in things like not offering alternatives, not offering the option of keeping the original syllabus. I think that's the, probably the biggest violation here. Uh, these alternatives are in fact change, in effect changing the syllabus, and they don't give you an option to keep the original. What are the next steps to the extent that these modifications in the syllabus are undermining the quality and the integrity of learning that's happening? What does your union and other student groups, what are the next steps forward, either after the strike or as the strike drags on? 
so after it's part of a number of student groups taking action, mm-hmm. I know within the faculty we are continuing to, to report these violations, that violations, and mm-hmm. we, are to, we are continuing to push um, for them to be, uh, you know, investigated. So there's that. But in terms of, you know, dealing with the strike and dealing with things, continuous pressure, uh, we are working with a lot of other groups to continually put pressure on um, Simcoe Hall to negotiate. And in that case, I don't need to walk out occurring. Um, and it's just like really just building solidarity among the undergraduate students, trying to get the undergraduate students to understand that, you know, this is why this is important. Your education is being affected. Uh, you're paying money. And also strike breaking necessarily isn't isn't necessarily what's the solution to the problem going forward. As we have said, our, our union has consistently maintained that we want an end to the strike um, by a proper negotiation process that does, that fairly compensates the TAs. And the reason we want that is because they don't bring a sense of normalcy back to the questions. And then you can finally have a return to the, the education that you that you signed up for. You know, changing like having another person take over the class or changing the, the, the method of the evaluation. Not only, not only does that create an uneven like, you know, playing field within the faculty itself, it's not fair to the students within the course because like, you know, a sixty percent final is not the definition of a, you know, quality assessment. So essentially we're we're trying to really, really push our students to um, and I feel it's working um, to pressure the university um, to come back to the negotiating table. And in the sense that we are trying our best, obviously uh, it, it's apparent right now that the university does not really, you know, care to listen to undergraduate students, um, uh, as well as uh, the <laughs> other chorus of voices calling for them to negotiate. You know, post strike there will be no there will be recommendations coming from our union uh, about going forward and such with the fact that I'm investigating all that stuff. But in the interim, to end the strike, we just all all we can really do is continue pressure tactics. Other than the proposed walkout, can you? Can you describe any of the kind of pressuring tactics that students are engaging in? So there are there are a lot of uh, so specifically Ashley uh, has a lot of core teams that are have been quite enthusiastic. In fact, uh, some of the Ashley's members uh, people forget that our own members are members of QP thirty nine or two and our TAs themselves and are also on strike. So um, some some of the core students have been quite instrumental in uh, you know leading. Um, Participation, participating in um, solidarity actions. There, students are often. If you go to the Athlete Facebook page, or whatever, there is a call and sign up that you can sign up to do. Um, and basically, that's when you sign up for a slot to call the provost's office, mm. um, and basically let them know how you feel. Uh, we often encourage students to consistently email. Um, I know Victoria. There was a girl named uh, Victoria who organized like a letter writing campaign. Um, and then, the, of course, the walkout is being put on. So they're, they're, we're, we're basically say, telling students that, you know, if you don't feel comfortable doing one or the other, it's fine. Like, there are multiple steps that you can take. Even if it's just, you know, wearing, like, a solidarity button. I mean, like, whatever fits in your comfort zone, like, it's, like, and whatever you can do to take action, then that's great. Yeah, and there's there are consistently things coming up. So um, some some of our student organizations are choosing, you know, not to have their have their social on campus. Others are choosing to, um, you know, if they have to have an event on campus, uh, preface it with a with a solidarity statement. I know some of our course unions were at the March. Some of our course unions, in terms of the March break fair, either boycotted the March break fair or were there with, you know, uh, information about QP 39 or two, um, mm. and we're wearing I I T A buttons. 
So um, is, is there a lot of, um, you know, ways to take action? And uh, it's just constantly in a state of flux because the new ideas and new discussions are occurring. But it's very much, I'd say, not a union-led thing so far. It's very much a grassroots-led thing. And what you say about students just wearing buttons, I don't think that until this strike and I actually spent time on the picket lines that I would have known how much I would appreciate a simple button. It makes a big difference. To the extent that I've heard anything about this strike in the mainstream media, there is some talk about how students only have leverage via their parents and via their official uh, political representatives, whether at the provincial or the federal level. So has there been any attempt to bring parents into the fold and between students and parents actually reach out to political representatives in your home ridings? Interesting, interesting. You mentioned politics. I was actually the first day of the strike, or the second day of the strike, I was meeting meeting with um, the advisor to the premier on post-secondary education. Um, and they asked how the strike was affecting campuses, if lab and tutorials were canceled. And actually, I said, no, a lot of classes are canceled. And they seemed surprised at that. And mm-hmm. they just said, oh, that's interesting. Um, which, which, you know, to me, I found interesting because I, I would think the province would know that the university had to do them have classes running. But, um, you know, that's been a consistent messaging from the university that classes are running as normal, and they're not. I, I don't think right now... There hasn't been effective outreach, um, and, you know, that's probably how it felt uh, to parents, but I know students are talking to, to their parents about it, and I know just from hearing stories and stuff like that, that parents are aware of the situation, and um, they are, like, you know, you know, more sympathetic to um, the teaching assistant. Um, in terms of, like, getting politicians, politicians involved, I know, like, you know, some MPs have come to the demonstrations and stuff like that, but, like, there hasn't, like, right now, there hasn't been a an effective push um, to get parents involved, and they should be. Um, I think there was, uh, I think part of the March Break Open House uh, action, which was like where, of course, you went, and some of them had, like, you know, buttons and such, was an attempt to do that, a starting attempt. Again, yeah, I, I think there's more we can do. You know, discuss that. I want to discuss about undergraduate education and how that's being affected um, because of the university's refusal to negotiate. So the university is spreading a business-as-usual message. For a typical arts and sciences undergrad, is it really business-as-usual? Is academic integrity of courses being maintained? Oh, I mean, like, like I just laughed at the university statement. They said, of course not. <laughs> it's quite, uh, education is being quite affected. Um, and, you know, you can just see it from the amount of, like, for example, I see this call last week at, 3 p.m. Monday. That place is usually bustling with students, um, and you can there was a noticeable decline in the amount of students that were in, in, like around. So classes are shut. There are classes that have you know students have no access to, um, and because of the late the nature, because you know instructors have withdrawn their labor from the strike, which they had every right to do. Students basically like you know are wondering about assignments, wondering about tests, and they're, they're just kind of figuring out. Um, in terms of courses, like I said, if you have a course that basically has some form of TA labor, you have likely seen a change to your syllabus, and that change is likely not like you know what you you would have signed up for had you had you seen that syllabus, had you seen the modified syllabus at the beginning of the year, right? We're seeing assignments being taken out, we're seeing re-waiting, and like basically 
it's never a good educational experience to have stuff compressed and um, you know limited to to two evaluations or three evaluations that are heavily weighted. That's not a good. Students are being cheated out of their education, and they're not getting a full, a full, a, a well-rounded one. So when the university says, you know, business as usual, it's not business as usual. The classes are canceled, labs are canceled, the toilets are canceled, and the classes that are running that have TAs in them are being severely affected. Um, and for the university to say, you know, business as usual, and then like business as usual, and then not negotiate, shows that they are out of touch with the undergraduate position. Um, which is unfortunate. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it is affecting undergraduate students, and I urge the provost office and I urge the university to recognize that uh, and basically to, um, you know, um, for the sake of undergraduates and for the sake of the university of Toronto itself and its reputation, um, to come back to the bargaining table immediately. I know that this is affecting the university of Toronto's reputation. I've heard many stories, a few stories, about students from you know UCL and students from the City University of New York, not basically changing their mind about coming to grad school here because they they've heard about the TA strike and they're like, well, you know, that's a shitty, excuse me, that's a really bad funding package. Uh, that's not the the TAs must be on strike for a reason. Um, and you know, reconsidering the decision to come to the University of Toronto. So I, I really question the strategy and the, the tactics that are coming out of the call. There are students who are planning to graduate who are you know wondering like what's going to happen um, because it, we are now in the third week of the strike, the beginning of the third week, and there still there is no indication from the university that they will negotiate. Um, so there's definite anxiety on that front. Part of the reason I'm not considering grad school is, again, because of the precarious nature of graduate studies. It's something at one point I would have considered, but factoring into my decision has been like the precarious nature of graduate studies. Um, not just as the University of Toronto, but I think rather like institutionally-wise, um, it's, it's an unfortunate trend. Um, but U of T being at the lowest of that one. For high school students who have just been getting their letters of acceptance, what advice do you have for them when they go about the difficult decision of deciding where they're going to spend the next four years or more? The University of Toronto, I I have lots of experience, you know, being four years, doing four years at the University of Toronto. I've, I personally also worked for the University of Toronto um, at the Office of Student Life before. Um, I like coming to U of T. That said, I, people are always like, oh, why do you... That said, I'm extremely frustrated with the institution itself and the administration. So U of T, I always, I, I always caution students about, you know, to, to know what they're signing up for, essentially. It's a great institution, but that's also dependent on what you made from it, and also to realize, if they do come here, to realize what they're getting into, that, that they are getting into a situation that, you know, they may have a thousand uh, class sizes. They may have a class size of a thousand. They may have, you know, understa- understaffed courses, courses. They may have, like, you know, um, courses that, you know, don't have the proper resources being put into them. And teaching only makes up 10% of the university's budget. So that's what I would tell an undergraduate student is, like, I've had a fairly positive, like, experience, but, like, fairly positive with the caveat that I've also been fairly frustrated um, with the quality of education, with um, 
the with some of the practices of the of the administration. So I would tell students, you know, take that into consideration definitely. And if you do come to university, the University of Toronto, you know, don't be an active participant, participant in your education. Don't be complacent. Um, you know, make sure that you know about like your rights as a student, but also know that that know about you know how the university runs and operates and how where your money goes and like basically become an active participant in the university and work towards making the university a better place while you're here. You're push for better change, especially the administration. In terms of the depth and breadth of undergraduate support for QP 3902 members, what's your honest assessment? Would you say that support is growing or declining? Just give me a sense of how undergraduates are responding to this situation. I've now been here, uh, I've now experienced two strike bugs, one that didn't happen and one that did. In my first year, the, the atmosphere was, intense. It was quite hostile to QAs, um, and we didn't strike. Um, but then, like this year, what I've noticed is uh, um, there has been incredible support for the union and an incredible clarity and understanding of the issues at hand. Of course, there are a few students who, you know, either have had a bad experience with a teaching assistant or, like, um, you know, are in first year and aren't really at a first or second or even like third or fourth year, they aren't properly informed and so therefore they they don't support the union or like they have, you know, their ideology basically isn't isn't uh, pro union or whatever. Um but among the students, undergraduates, a, a vast majority of undergraduate students, I believe, from what from what we've seen at ASU, um, and from what I've seen online and from that, is that students do, you know, support the the teaching assistants, and they do recognize the University of Toronto hasn't helped with their position in the sense of like you know they're not negotiating, um, and students recognize that they recognize that the union is going to negotiate, and the union essentially you know strikes because they had got a bad deal. You know, QP does not strike often. In 2000, they strike, and 2015, they strike. It's indicative of the students that, you know, the funding package must have been that bad. Uh, and when they see the union saying, like, look, we want to negotiate, and when they see the university refusing to negotiate, and a fundamental demand being, like, you have to negotiate, um, it's not hard to, to essentially see what side... It's not hard to support the union in that case. One is calling for a return from normalcy, the other one is saying, we're going to wait. Um, and fundamentally, the, the you have to question the university's, um, you know, motives, and also whether or not undergraduate education is a priority. Um, if it is a priority, why aren't you negotiating? So a lot of undergraduate students do recognize that. Something that I think is really important, and hopefully this is an opportunity to get the message out to people on the picket lines, have you had any reports of students having negative interactions with QP members on the picket lines? Is there anything that QP can do to improve their relations with undergraduate students and you know, experiences? You know, I've heard this like once from like, there's a, there's, I've heard this from like, a couple, like one commenter. But, like, in all honesty, no. Like, I have not heard. I've, like, when people are like, oh, my God, those angry kids or whatever, you know, I've personally not had that inter that experience, and I've, I don't know anyone who has had that experience. Because they're usually smiling, and they're usually, like, friendly, and, um, you know, they don't, they, they, people say, oh, they're, they're, the way the university makes it sound, like, oh, they're going to, like, you know, block you, blah, 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 and be really aggressive. That's not the case at all. Uh, I don't think, uh, I think, you know, the cricketers doing a great job at, you know, managing relations and, like, you know, being cordial and stuff. 
um, if anything, the, the aggressive nature that I see has come from certain drivers um, who have, have, and of course, the nature of some particular that you have to slow down cars and stuff. So I've seen some aggressive nature from some drivers, but I haven't seen some, anything aggressive from picketers or really towards undergraduate students. Um, so I like I, I've seen like a few people who have taken a stance against union say that, but I haven't seen anything to really you know back that up. So from what I've experienced, that certainly it's been quite positive. To counter the university's business as usual message in order to try to bring the employer back to the table, there has been some talk among the union about moving to a system of hard pickets that actually block access rather than simply create a presence on campus. What are your feelings about that model and how do you think that other students might react to more of a shut it down, escalated approach to picketing? Well, I think especially if you're you're in classes that are not affected, um, that would be more, that would certainly put a quandary on students specifically because, specifically if if there's a student who like, you know, supports the union but doesn't doesn't want to cross the picket line but has like participation in the class or whatever. Um, And the university has this this double, like this catch-22 where they're just like, oh, well, you can't be penalized, penalized for not crossing the picket line, but like you're still responsible for all the material in the class. So it's certainly like I can understand the tactic and I'm not necessarily for or against it, but it's certainly one that would I I'd say certainly make things more I guess create more of a um more of a, a debate within the undergraduate uh population and more um more, more, basically make people think about it a little bit more. That's not, again, that's not to say that I'm necessarily for or against it. And some, some have argued that, you know, picketing certain, have hard picketing certain, like, buildings that are, you know, integral to the function of the university, as opposed to, like, the buildings that students frequent would be more effective. I think, uh, you know, it's certainly an option. Um, and I certainly think that, you know, you see some, some, some undergraduate groups and some faculty groups recognizing that the functioning of the university is refusing to hold their events and refusing to, you know, come to campus to speak um, because they recognize that um, it, it buys into the university's narrative of business as usual. So I don't really have an answer in, in that sense. Um, I'm not for or against it, but uh, I, I do think that among the undergraduate population would be more of a controversial tactic. What would you like Ontarians or maybe Canadians to know about this strike that they might not already know? So I, I'd like Ontarians and Canadians to know that this strike, UFT, UFT is responsible for the strike, but fundamentally this strike is comes from a lack of funding to our post-secondary institutions. Um, and comes from an understanding of a post-secondary education increasingly as one you know, just being about financial aid as opposed to total funding. Um, so financial aid being more of a, you know, electorally stomaching, uh, 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 being more of a like, populist idea, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, it's necessary, but it shouldn't dominate the conversation. Um, students in Ontario's, Ontario's post-student funding hasn't increased in uh, like 20 years. Um, our university is like consistently uh, underfunded as are other public universities in the province. Um, and I'd encourage uh, Ontarians and Canadians, specifically parents who are, you know, 
who are who want their their children to go to university, um, and who recognize that university increasingly is a precursor to get any job really. And in fact, it actually might be considered like one of the lowest, like the the baseline requirement. Um, that you know, if this is being considered integral to the functioning of our of our economy, um, is if this is being considered integral to get a job, then it should be funded properly. Um, politicians, our parents, and um, everybody uh, like in the older generations um, went to uh, were privileged were privileged enough to were privileged enough to attend university to attend paying fees that were quite low um, and quite subsidized. And so it doesn't make sense to us that in a time where university is now more important and more students are attending, that you fund it less. It is fundamentally a result. The reason um, the TA is getting paid less and the reason, um, like, that's not to justify the TA is getting paid less. The university has priorities and has money and should reallocate them. But the reason why we are facing all of these problems in education is fundamentally because the province and the country, to a certain extent, do not recognize post-secondary education as a priority and a priority to be funded. Thank you to Abdulashihipar of the ASSU for his time and thoughts. If you made it to the end of this podcast, my sincere thanks and congratulations. If you have questions you would like addressed or ideas for interviews, please contact us at qppodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, qppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Abdullah Shihipar of the ASSU for his time and thoughts. If you made it to the end of this podcast, my sincere thanks and... uh, Thank you to Abdullah Shihipar of the ASSU and his words uh, for this podcast.